Welcome back to Real Talk with Rachel. I'm your host, Rachel Gilbert, and I am so glad that you're here. This show is a safe place you can come to hear relevant, engaging, and authentic topics to help you get real, live free, and pursue your God-given dreams. Today's guest is another one I met on that business trip to Florida for our clinic. Uh, The same trip that I met last week's guest, Aaron Porter. It's kind of like God's telling me he wants to move to Florida or something. Totally kidding, not kidding, but seriously. I know today's episode is longer than usual, but you're going to see why as you listen to today's guest, who's a former U.S. Navy SEAL, Don Mann. Holy cow, you guys. I, I just... I'm sorry, not sorry for this episode going longer than usual because it was so good. Let me read you a little bit about his bio. I I really can't read you all of his bio because you're going to see why. This guy has accomplished more than I think like 10 of us combined (laughs) are going to do in our life. So let me just tell you a little about him. Man's impressive military biography includes being a decorated combat veteran, corpsman, SEAL Special Operations Technician, Jungle Survival, Desert Survival, and Arctic Survival Instructor. Small Arms Weapons Instructor, Foreign Weapons Instructor, Resistance and Escape Instructor, in addition to several other credentials. Man's the author of 19 books, including the New York Times best-selling autobiography, Inside SEAL Team 6, My Life and Missions with America's Elite Warriors. As a training coordinator for several civilian SEAL training programs and as a former training officer of SEAL Team 6, he was directly responsible for shaping the bodies and minds of SEALs who carried out the assassination of Osama bin Laden, as well as many other classified missions. But to become a SEAL, man had to overcome his own troubled childhood and push his body to its breaking point and beyond. At the podium and inside SEAL Team 6, he shares a high-octane narrative of physical and mental toughness, giving unprecedented insight to the inner workings of the training and secret missions of the world's most respected and feared combat unit. And he shares a little bit of that today in the episode. Don Mann has over 40 years and 1,000-plus races. You heard me correctly, 1,000-plus races worth of competitive racing experience and was once ranked 38th in the world as a triathlete. I'm going to need you, when you're done listening to the show, go to usfrogman.com and read all the details about his bio and the races he's participated in over the years. I I would take another 30 minutes to tell you all those, but it's really quite impressive and it will help you, I think, have even more respect for today's interview. You're just going to be blown away to see all he's accomplished. And so without further ado, let's jump into the conversation that I had with Dawn. Well, hello, Dawn, and welcome to the show. I'm so glad to have you. Oh, it's really nice to be here with you. Before we even jump into anything, I just publicly want to thank you for your service to our country. I know I appreciate it and all the listeners do as well. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank yeah. you for saying that. Before we jump into some of the questions I have for you, I would love for you just to share with the listeners a little bit about the area that you served in. Okay. Well, I served 21 years in the Navy and a little bit of time was with the Marines. My time was split between SEAL Team 1, SEAL Team 2, and SEAL Team 6. Wow. And I retired from SEAL Team 6. Okay. How long ago did you retire? Uh, 1998. Wow. And what was your specialty? We all had, um, you were all SEALs first, and then you had to have a backup job, collateral duties. And mine was a medic as a corpsman. We called it a corpsman. 
and as all lead climber. So I'd set up the ropes for the rock climbing and, and things like that. And I was a dive master and a static line and free fall jump master. Those were the specialties I had. Mainly it was medic though, when there was a, an, an urgent emergency or something, I was there to treat the guys. Okay. So did you always think you wanted to be a SEAL growing up? Tell us your, your story on that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, now I get a lot of calls from guys and they say, you know, since I was eight, I wanted to be a SEAL or since I was nine or seven or something like that. But back when I joined, there wasn't a whole lot of publicity out about the SEALs. When I finally talked to a recruiter and I saw the SEAL video, seeing guys running down the beach and diving and blowing things up and shooting and and just working out all the time and deploying all over the world. As soon as I watched that video, it changed my life because there was nothing else in the world I wanted to do but that. Yeah. Yeah. I remember um, I'm actually listening to one of your books. You've written several books, correct? I have, yeah. 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 What number are you on? Number 20. Wow. Okay. So this is like the day of authors for me because I did an interview earlier today. Her name's Trisha Goyer. She's written 70 books. And so I was like, man, I don't know how you guys are pumping these things out. It's amazing. So (laughs) yeah, that's awesome. But the latest one that I'm listening to is the Reaching Beyond Boundaries, which we're going to talk about that a little to hear. But I, I loved how you shared a little bit of that, of your background, that even growing up, you weren't what would you consider yourself as a, as a teen growing up? Well, Rachel, I'm not proud of this, but I, I, I wasn't a good kid. Actually, I just loved adventure and action and excitement way more than I did studying and coming home early at night. And so I, I, I like the being out at night on motorcycles, being chased by the police and things like that, being underage. I just liked fun and excitement. And, and a lot of the people I grew up with ended up in a lot of trouble. I feel very, very fortunate to have found the SEAL teams because you could take all that energy and channel it. And um, unfortunately, people I grew up with, the vast majority of them didn't find a way to channel the energy they had. And, and they just went, a lot of cases, bad directions. Yeah. Well, I really just appreciated that about your story and when you shared that in the book, because it's just neat to hear how, you know, got your life turned around by going this direction. And then you end up using those those things that were interest to you for good and to help people. So so that's really neat. I know that being a Navy SEAL is not something that you just decide to do. And then sure, it's super easy. We're just going to walk in. We're going to do it. I know there's a lot that goes into it. So can you tell us anything about the training, I mean, I know there's a, quite a big, you know, dropout rate. What was the toughest part for you on that, getting through that process? Absolutely. So the moment I decided to be a SEAL, I, I did it the right way, not knowing it was the right way, but I knew absolutely positively there was nothing else I wanted. And I always give that advice to younger guys who want to be SEALs. I said, don't have a backup plan. Mm. Because if you're in the parking lot with mm. all the grinder and they're spraying you with a hose and you're doing thousands of push-ups and flutter kicks and pull-ups and running in and out of the ocean. You're doing that all morning long before your long run and just the brutal harassment you get. At some point, you're going to think, well, maybe that backup plan is not so bad. So I think the best thing is not to have a backup plan. And there were times I never thought about quitting, but there were times I wished I would pass out in the cold water because it was so cold, but I knew I couldn't quit. So I just hoping I was going to pass out. And I did pass out one time, Wow! <laughs> but uh, it's kind of a nice if you pass out because, you know, they pulled you up and, and you can trust them. But I, I think the, the four things to become a SEAL 
that helped me a lot, and this is advice I give to the people who want to be SEALs nowadays, is I have just, I simplified it into four categories. So every day, every single day, do something that makes you stronger. Mm-hmm. Bunch of push-ups, a bunch of pull-ups, a bunch of sit-ups, weight room, CrossFit, Spartan races, anything that'll make you stronger. And every day, do something. And, and a lot of people want it on a silver platter. Like, can you give me the exact workout? I said, no, you've got to figure that out yourself. But every day, do something to make you faster. Maybe you're punching the fat speed bag faster or doing sprints in the pool faster or fartleks or, or um, track workouts, something to make you faster. So stronger, faster, and then even more importantly, every day do something to make you smarter. And to stay alert to what's going on in the news, like we just had that big raid this week and, you know, we got a big bad guy, you know, an ISIS leader, the ISIS creator. Actually, I know the parents of... Steven Zoltoff, who that person cut off his head. So to stay informed of our threat and what's going on and read about special operations and SEALs and special forces and the development of back when it all started and what they've been doing all these years. And so get smarter every single day through reading and research. And then I say the most important of it all, those are all important, but the most important is every day to do something good for somebody you know, your sister, your mother, your neighbor, or the little lady crossing the street, because the best SEAL, see, the only really good SEAL is one who's a really good teammate. You mm. still got to be strong and fast, and but you, the most important part, I think, is being a good teammate. And if you do all those four things every day, and you start at a young age, say 10 or 12 or 15, by the time you go in selection, and if you got stronger, smarter, and faster every day, and help people every day, day, I don't see how anybody's going to beat you in getting selected to go to BUDS, which is the SEAL training course. And that, that's my best advice really for anybody. Well, I love that advice because I think it's, I actually think it's applicable to more than just somebody wanting to be a SEAL, you know, I mean, especially that piece of advice about being a good teammate, that is something that people have to learn in life, period. So what is, you said that's one, the teammate part is one of the most important things. How do you feel like that people become someone who's a, a trustworthy teammate? It's really just through you, you you all get together, you're in a class of say 120, 150 people. And if you, it's easy to identify the person who just takes care of themselves and they don't help the others around them. It's easy to see that if you see somebody struggling on the obstacle course and someone just runs by them or you see someone helping them pull them up, that's a teammate. Or someone's having a hard time putting a floor and weapon together because they don't remember how. And the other person takes a break and helps them out. When you see a good teammate, an exceptionally good teammate, th- those are usually who ends up running the teams, the senior enlisted or the senior officer corps that run the SEAL teams. That, that good teammate is really what it's about. You know, there's no I in team type of thing, mm-hmm. uh, like in basketball, mm-hmm. said it years ago, but it strongly applies to SEAL teams. We really never, ever, ever want these superstar athletes who come to training and they think they're just the coolest of everybody because whatever they have, Olympic records, whatever. But if they're not a team player, they get washed out immediately. We don't want them around. Yeah. But the person who might not be super fast or super strong, but is willing to help out anybody at any time and is willing to take help when he needs it, that, that's like usually the best seals we have. Yeah. And I agree with you. I think that applies to a lot of professions and mm-hmm. people in general. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's so good. So tell us about a time that when you were a SEAL and you actually almost drowned under a ship on a night dive. I'm sure you have a lot of these kinds of stories, but. (laughs) (laughs) So we were one time in the pool. There was a time when you have to do this forward flip in the air, go underwater, hold your breath, swim underwater, do a flip turn underwater and come back, holding your breath. And at that point in my life, I had trained four years to become a SEAL. Nothing else mattered to me. Everything I ate was to become a stronger SEAL. Every workout was to become a SEAL. Everything I did was to become a SEAL. So when I went to BUDS, I felt as ready as I could possibly be. So then they had us do this exercise in the pool. And they said, whatever you do, don't give up. You're all going to feel like you need to breathe. But if you really need to breathe, just exhale a little bit. And if you pass out on the water, we'll pull you up. So I was thinking, that can't be so bad. So I did my flip turn in the air, went underwater, and swam 25 meters underwater. But I really started feeling like I had to breathe. It was bothering me that I wasn't breathing. And I felt like there was an ice pick in my head, sort of, you know. And then I flipped, did my flip turn underwater, and I was coming back, just doing the breaststroke underwater as best I could. I couldn't go any faster. My head was hurting more and more and more and more. And I shot up to the surface. And I quit. And they said, get over there, quitter. And uh, they don't even look at you. They just say, get over there. And you feel so diminished. You know, you don't feel like you're worth the thing. And basically, I wasn't because my whole life was to be a SEAL. And I just quit because I was a little uncomfortable. And I think of 125 people, seven had passed that, that exercise. And they said to us, they said, you guys... You're not worthy of our time. I don't know what we're wasting our time on you for. Navy doesn't want people who quit if they're feeling uncomfortable. You could have stayed in the water. We would have pulled you up like we told you, but you're feeling bad for yourselves. We don't want you. Get out of here. And that's how that's how we were feeling. And then they asked the guys who did pass. They said, you want to give them another chance? They said, yeah, let's give them another chance. So I did the flip turn. I did it all. Went underwater, came back, and, and still hurt like an ice pick was going through my head. And it was getting worse worse and worse i knew to keep kicking keep kicking keep kicking but when i woke up they're pulling me out of the pool frothing at the mouth so i needed someone stronger to get me through that and then a couple years later doing a night ship attack when you're diving underwater doing all these different legs like you might go a couple hundred meters this way everybody stops you turn right it's always pitch black and you finally are swimming and you can't be underwater for more than four hours because we breathe pure oxygen, and that becomes toxic if you're diving it for more than four hours or you're below 30 feet. And I, and it's pitch black, so I was looking at my watch. I go, oh, no, it's four and a half hours, four hours and 40 minutes, and we were having a, a bad dive. And we finally found our ship, and you hook up a line underneath the ship, and it's a line that just comes straight down, and you take off your fins and put it on the line, and you take off your weight belt and put it on, you take off your breathing apparatus, which is called the dragger, and you're going up and down, and the ship's going up and down. It's pitch black, and it's cold, and I know we're way beyond our limits. And I was just breathing, and I was attached to, I was breathing from my rig that was on the line. But then all of a sudden, I had nothing. I had not a breath of air in there. The, my breathing rec- mechanism was not working. And we had standard operating procedures to check your hose, check your valve, and check your oxygen. And I did all three of those. I checked my hoses, they weren't kinked. My oxygen was on and my uh, mouthpiece was on. 
And I went through those procedures three times and I couldn't breathe. And the rule of engagement we had was whatever happens, don't get caught. Because if you pop up and the enemy's up on the ship, they can throw grenades in the water and everyone gets killed. Mm. So you, and the ship, if the ship is really a big, big ship, which they are, if, they, if it was that big, you're like minuscule under there. You're really small. So I went through those three procedures. My head started hurting and I couldn't get a breath. So I shook the fin of the seal above me. His name was Kevin. And, and he came down to me and I did this to his mouth, to his face to see if he had a mouthpiece in and he didn't. And I didn't want to make him panic. So I went through my procedures one more time. I was thinking, I'm going to blow this whole thing. So I swam up and I swam up and I felt the bottom of the ship. I started walking hand over hand over hand, feeling the bottom of the ship. And my head was killing me. I pictured instead of just like an ice pick, now it's like a big rusty knife it felt like just in my head. And I couldn't come up because the ship was obscured. There was a big obstruction there. And then I was thinking, now what? I just needed to breathe. And minutes have gone by without breathing minutes so I just kept kicking and kicking my legs you know like this kicking and I was going deeper and deeper and colder and colder I was getting colder I just knew to keep kicking like they taught me in training I ended up swimming underwater to the front of the ship with the light reflecting in I think I followed the light without even thinking about it then I swam over to the side of the ship and all my buddies were climbing the ship and um made it okay (laughs) so that was my time under the ship wow so your training prepared you for battle. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it sure did. And, wow. and also, as ready as I thought I was to be a, go through training, I really needed someone a lot stronger than me to get me through it yeah. you know, in training. Yeah. How do you feel like, and I feel like this is something all of you who are SEALs possess, and this is something I would love to know how to do more of. How do you remain calm in life or death situations like that? Because I think that fight or flight kicks in with people and just like, I just need air, you know, like that, that kind of takes over. And so how, how did you train your mind to be that strong? I don't know why this is, but I can say that when things get really, really chaotic and bad things are going on, and if it's a terrible accident or a decapitation or a blast or a shooting or something, I feel calm. Mm. I feel calm. I don't know why that is, but from the first times I started seeing that, I'd even almost stop and think, I feel very calm right now. Mm. But you do go through those things, and people see those things, and you experience bad things as a SEAL. And I think the more you experience, if you see something terribly, terribly tragic, something that's just tragic, but not terribly tragic, just doesn't seem as bad. And you also know deep inside that if you stay calm, you can be able to handle the situation better. And it's better for everybody around you. And you can't lose control. And you just have to stay calm. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to tell you disgusting details or anything. But I think the first time there's a, a person ejected from an airplane. I, I feel bad saying this to you. You're such a nice woman. I don't want to say anything bad. But he, <laughs> he, he scraped across the runway. And, all the skin came off of his arm. Wow. And when I lifted up his arm, I said to my friends, his Timex, it's still ticking. And and I just was trying to ease up the mood. Like, let's just stay calm. I, I don't know why that is. I don't know why. But we do have what they call a metrodome heart rate. 
where your heart rate variability doesn't go way up and then come way down and way up. And we're not like people who are very emotional. And so your heart rate just goes up a little bit and down a little bit, up a little bit and down a little bit. So when something really, really, really tragic or terrible happens, it just goes up a little. So you're still in control of everything. So you might see a person and then he just comes from something terrible that happened and he doesn't look a whole lot different. Mm. It's just it's bad for you too because you internalize things and you absorb it. And it, I'm sure it tears you up on the inside. Yeah. And up here too. Yeah. You know, like for instance, there's a SEAL who, who killed Bin Laden, Rob O'Neill, he's a friend of mine. And he's been on 70 missions where over 70 people were killed. And um, I don't understand how the, the psyche, a, a human soul or psyche can handle that. You know, we, we really don't, I don't think we're prepared for that. And so not necessarily Rob, but people who've been in, through a lot of that, they ended up, they end up drinking a lot and getting a lot of stress inside. It, it's sad. It's sad. You know, I don't put myself in that actually bad things. I don't think it's bothered me in any way because I, I didn't see the things the guys are seeing nowadays who've been through two nonstop wars. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like, and if you're comfortable answering this, that you or any of your buddies had PTSD when you came back and like tried to re-acclimate to civilian life? I'm glad you asked me that. Because I have really mixed feelings on this. Mm-hmm. I know, I think everybody I know has PTSD actually, mm-hmm. because I think the umbrella of saying PTSD is this big umbrella. I think everybody fits into that. And I think it's, it's some money making scheme for people to get a lot of extra help mm-hmm. um, when they get out. I, you know, people tell me, they said, you have PTSD, you got to get checked. You do crazy things. I said, no, I've done crazy things all my life. It wasn't the seal that made me do crazy things. I've done crazy things all my life. So I went, I promised two of my seal buddies, two of my Navy buddies, I would go get checked. And I did. And supposedly I'm 90% PTSD, 90% disabled because of PTSD. But I don't believe I have it because I don't think any different now than when I was 15 years old. Yeah. I love that. I think there's a need it. A lot of people do have it and it's scary, you know, because the, the psychiatrist who told me I had it, she said the last seal was in here, he had to stand behind a wall because he thought the door was going to be blasted open. And another seal came through here, he wouldn't stand here because he thought he was going to take sniper shots. I said, well, I'm not like that at all. I'm very comfortable right now. and So I, I don't believe I have it, but somehow I'm in the VA system now and they say I have it and 90% disabled. I, and I never wanted to go to the VA because I went to Everest a couple of years ago and I just did a mountain bike this race uh, this past weekend and I'm doing things I haven't, you know, I've been doing all my life at a level I even haven't done in my 50s or 40s or 30s. So I, I don't think I do. Yeah. They ask you like five or six questions. They say, yep, you've got it. I, I don't believe in the system. Yeah. Well, when, it does, when it helps people who don't have it, I know the people who need it and have it. They require assistance. But I, I personally, I'm not in that category. I don't believe. Yeah. 
Well, thank you for sharing that perspective. That's very interesting. And yeah, you know, I got to, for the people listening, they may not know this about how I even found you, was um, my husband and I got to hear you speak at an AMI conference, which is, you know, for for doctors. And and when you were rattling off all the things you've done, and I love how you can tell you you your mindset is on a whole different playing field than most people, because you're talking about all these things you've done and accomplished, but you're talking about it like you would, oh yeah, I went and got coffee, you know, like, like totally not a big deal, you know, like, oh yeah, just nonchalant, all the things you've done. And I remember just listening to that and being so inspired. And so I just find that interesting that you have been diagnosed with that. And it makes me wonder if you being so involved in all these things actually has helped you not you know, like develop the symptoms of it, or I don't know, I'm just, there's no telling, but I just think it's interesting how healthy you actually are. (laughs) Oh, well, thank you for saying that. Yeah. I could also say, you know, I I have a list of things that I talk about in those talks, Mm -hmm. but I'm not trying to say this to be modest or humble or anything, but it's really minuscule compared to so many other people who don't even talk about it. And it's just pretty small list of things like as far as the athletes the athletic things i've done i've done over a thousand races and i'm still competing and i like that a lot but i have friends who've done over five thousand and yeah there's a seal but um i have friends who came in right after we were attacked on 9 11 and they've been seals their entire adult lives and at war their entire adult lives so you know and i'm a writer but i'm not a great writer i have good co-writers <laughs> co-authors so the list, I think it's, um, it's, it's, it's true and everything, but there's so many more people that I've lived with and, and trained with and raced with and served with who have done so, so much more. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You know, another thing that when you were talking and I was sitting in the audience, it was kind of funny because that day I actually woke up with a little cold and I was a little grumbly about the cold. And then you're telling a story. And if you want to share it here, you can to give some people some perspective. You're telling the story about when you were trapped in a hole with three of your other teammates and you all were sick and, you know, you know, trapped in this. And I'm like, okay, I think my my cold isn't so bad after all. It was a little bit of perspective. So. Yeah. So if you, do you want to share that story at all about that, that time? So that time there, I was with SEAL team and um, we were working with our Egyptian commando counterparts and you do what they do and they do what you do. And there were these things, they said, okay, break a brick over your head. So boom. And they'd show you how to do it. Then they'd get two bricks and they'd go boom. So I thought I'd show them and I got three and I hit my head so hard I almost just killed myself. <laughs> but you just do what they do and they do what you do, not to lose face. So then they took these snakes and frogs and some of the snakes were poisonous. Mm. And they take the snake, mm. they beat it on its on their boot and knock it out and peel the skin back and take the venom sacs out. Then they'd eat the snakes and they'd eat the non-poisonous snakes and the frogs. And we did the same thing because you had to do what they did. So we ate the frogs and the snakes and the poisonous snakes. And uh, then we all got sick. Four of us were on this mission. We had to go down to a country down south of Egypt. It was in the Middle East. And, and I, don't, I can't really say what that country is. But, and we had to do a parachute jump with a rubber boat, jump into the ocean, get in the boat close to land, and then um, hide out for three days. And in that three days, we had to observe everything we could from the flight line and the planes coming in and out, the air traffic. And on this side, we had to look at the ship traffic coming in and out 
get it's called a reconnaissance mission and we had to get all this information and uh so my buddy and i and the, sh the water was infested with sharks there were so many sharks in that water and we wanted to get out of the water as quickly as we could because the arabs they killed all their camels and put their intestines in the water and all their guts and everything and so the sharks were always there eating and and the intel folks told us stay out of the water but we had to jump in the water so we jumped in the water got in the boat as quickly as we could took the boat up to shore about um, 100 meters away from the enemy beach. And then my buddy Dave and I, we slid out of the boat and had to swim to shore. And we swam fast to stay out of that water as quick, get out of the water as quick as we could. And uh, we couldn't find a place to hide for three days. And it was like a finger of land with water on three sides. The airport was over here and the ship was over here, the shipyard. So we decided we would just dig a hole in the middle of that little piece of land. And we called the boat, the other boat over with the other two people in it. Um, they came over, so we had the boat on the land now and four of us. And we, we had to do this at night before daylight. So we dug a hole, inflated the boat, put the boat in the motor and all the non-operational gear in one hole and buried that stuff. Then next to that hole, we dug another hole and it started getting light. We had to get out of there quickly. And uh, so we had to hide. So we went in that hole and had a camouflage netting to put over the hole so you couldn't see us. You know, if you were walking on the beach, you wouldn't see us until you got up close. Then there'd be camouflage netting. Then you could look down on the netting and see four people there. We had long hair and beards at the time, and we were sick. But we, we got away from it. We didn't get bothered by the sharks. We still had food poisoning, and we all had diarrhea, and we're all vomiting and urinating. But we had to do that in the hole. We couldn't leave the hole. And then at high tide, that hole filled up with water and sand. Mm. So we're in a sewage phase, all, all of us. And I got IVs in the other three guys, and they tried getting an IV in me, and they kept missing, and I got a badly infected arm with like 10 needle holes in it. I was the medic, so I, I was supposed to know how to start an IV and had more experience starting it than they did. And they tried, but they couldn't get it. And then uh, so I was really sick. All of us were sick, though, all four of us. And we were sick as can be and vomiting, diarrhea and everything in the hole. And then on the third day, uh, we're just sitting there and we had goggles on. And our ears were filled with sand, our noses were filled with sand. And we just, we weren't eating or drinking. And on the third day, this guy just came walking up through this windstorm. We kept walking to the hole. We all woke each other up saying, hey, there's a guy coming over. And we had weapons and rucksacks, you know, packs. And he was coming over at us. We all had our weapons up, and there's rules of engagement. If somebody's not a threat, you, you don't shoot them, you know. So he was just walking in his land. That was his land. And he was walking up to us. His eyes got bigger and bigger and bigger as he saw this camouflage netting. And then he looked into the hole. He probably saw four guys with goggles and long hair and weapons. And he put his hands up, and he mumbled something, and he ran off. So we got caught. And he ran off to the village, and we tried so quickly to get out of that hole, undig the other hole, you know, get the motorboat going. And But before we got all that done, 14 guys, they looked like kids, really, with AK-47, you know, weapons. And they all had their fingers on the trigger, and they're pointing to our heads and to our chests. We put our hands up, and they circled around us. And they were scared to death. And one was saying, down, down, down. We shoot you in the backs for trespassing. We said, no, we're going to go in this boat and we're going home. But it's in broken English. They don't understand us. We don't understand them. 
and they were screaming at us. But we all stayed calm. We all stayed calm. We said, no, we're going in that boat, we're going home. We had little fake cards, get out of jail free cards, we call them. And one of my friends went to go get his and they put four weapons right up to his head. We thought they were going to kill him. They didn't. And they can't read anyways. The cards wouldn't have done any good anyways. And then they had sent somebody back to the village to get an interpreter who could understand English. And he came back and now it's daylight. And they held us at gunpoint overnight. He said, you trespass on our land. What we do to trespass is we shoot you in the backs, down on the ground. And we kept saying, we're not getting on the ground. Finally, they just said, go. <laughs> they let us go. We got back in the boat and we sat out at night, overnight in that boat, as sick as could be. We came back around and finished our mission. They should have never, ever let us go because they paid for that. We survived. Wow. I can't, I mean, <laughs> how, what was going through your mind? Can you even remember what was going through your mind at that? I mean, did you all basically think you were dead? No, no. no. I mean, our mindsets were right on. Mm-hmm. I don't, and I can't speak to the three guys, but I'm sure I can, I'm probably right what I'm saying. We were all afraid. And, but the other guys were more afraid, I think. And they had the weapons on us. But we knew we were going to get away. Mm-hmm. We knew we weren't going to be killed. We just were so confident that we could do anything we choose to do. Yeah. And we just, I, I wasn't afraid of dying at all. I didn't think, not that I wasn't afraid of it. I, I just knew, well, we're going to get out of this somehow. What I was really proud of the guys. The other thing I really liked about that time was nobody complained. Mm. You know, usually people complain and work hours and how bad work can get. Nobody complained about all that. So I really like that for those reasons. Yeah. How, how is that a military ingrained thing not to complain or what do you think that is? Well, I'd be lying if I said SEALs don't complain because they complain all the time, but not when it gets really bad. You know, like mm-hmm. if there's a new policy, people say, what the heck's with this policy? Yeah. But when it's really out there, and it's life or death, and you're really doing what you're trained to do. I've never heard anybody complain about that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's amazing. They let you go. Have you ever been captured? I've been captured twice, yeah. Wow. So that was one time. Yeah, that was one time, just held overnight at gunpoint. And another time that I put in another book, but it's uh, – and this one – I don't talk about as much, or I don't talk about the location all. It was down in Central South America, and there were three of us down there, and we had a package with us. And we started being chased by locals and local militia and corrupt police. Myself and Billy were, were good runners, and the other guy wasn't such, he wasn't so fit, really. He got separated from us right away. We didn't know what happened to him. Billy and I were running through these streets, running through neighborhoods, running through people's homes with chickens and people washing dishes and kids all over, blasting through the homes, through the front door and out the back door, under clotheslines, over fences, and it seemed like everybody was chasing us. There were police on the street yelling in Spanish, stop. I go, Billy zigzags, we're running like this so we wouldn't get shot. It was super, super hot out. And I said, Billy, ditch the package. And I won't say what was in the package. So we had to ditch the package under a car. 
And we were both fit runners, and we were, it seemed like everybody was after us. So I saw like a little bar saloon type thing up on the left on this little dirt road. I said, Billy, let's just run in there. And we're so hot and sweating. We're sitting there at the bar, and there was a mirror in the bar, and I could look in the mirror and see like three or four um, Hispanic guys in a corner table. And the bartender was looking at us very suspiciously. And I saw a door on my front right where the bartender comes in and out, where I thought we could run out if we had to. And the door we came in was back to my far left. And we were so hot. We're just breathing hard and we're out of breath. I said, Billy, just relax. Be cool. Be calm. We'll get out of here. And I was looking at the mirror through the guys behind us. And they would look like they're getting ready to get up. And at the door, there were a couple of people at the door. So there were like five people and the bartender getting ready to attack the two of us. I said, Billy, just stand up and we're gonna bolt out that door in front of us. So we stood up like this and we stood up and the guys at the table and the guys at the door charged us and pushed us into the bar and they took our hands back and they pulled our arms behind us. I was positive we were gonna lose our hands, but they took chicken wire and just bound our hands really, really tight and our feet really, really tight. And we couldn't move at all. And they couldn't tie that wire any tighter on our hands. I saw his hands, they were just big purple things. I'm sure mine looked the same. Then they carried us out and there was a, a pickup truck in the outside the bar. And it was so hot, but it was just a, a little pickup truck with a hot, hot, hot bed. And they put us on it and our skin was like sizzling. It was so hot. And we're just bouncing down this dirt road. And there were checkpoints but they didn't get stopped at the checkpoints. The guards said, just go. We're just bouncing in back. We didn't know where we were going. And I don't know how long the drive was, but I would say over a half hour, maybe a 40 minutes, but it just seemed like forever. We couldn't wait to get to where we were going because our skin was just melting on that metal. They pulled us out of the pickup truck and they kept the bound wires on us and they, they walked us into this little place and it looked like just a shack but when we walked in, to the left, there was a guard in a uniform at a desk, and he mumbled something, and they, they, he showed us where we had to go. And the guard put us in a jail cell where we met our other buddy. So now all three of us were in that jail cell, and it was disgustingly dirty. There was a bunk bed with just wood for the beds, and there was a bucket with black oil or something in it with a ladle in it, but all these dead flies in it. One of the guys was almost weeping. The other guy was praying, and I was doing dips and push-ups on the bed. We all had our ways to cope, you know. And, uh, and this is after this transvestite. I don't know if it was a man or a woman switched to woman or man. I don't know. But it was a transvestite, a big, big Adam's apple, big, tall person, and came in there and did the, her his best to cut us free. And it took forever to get our hands and feet back to normal looking. And then hours later, that's when we start doing, I started doing the workouts and, and that's where we started coping. And right across from our cell, there was a cell with black faces, you see eyes and teeth. It looked like there were 20 people there, like boys and men, skinny, skinny, skinny black people. And they were so skinny and they, it smelled so bad in there. And the transvestite came in later and took that ladle of the black fluid that was in our cell with all the dead flies in it. And she just took a ladle of it and put it in the cell between the bars across from us. 
and all those people are trying to drink it. So they were starving. And um, we were really hot and we were hungry and thirsty. And um, and we didn't touch anything to eat or drink, of course. And uh, they took everything we owned, our, our wallets, our IDs, our watches, our money. And we didn't know what was going to happen. And then a day and a half later, without eating or drinking, they came in. They bound our hands again, but not real tight in our feet. They put us back in that pickup truck. We didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't tell us anything. They still, they had, they robbed everything we had. They dropped us off in the desert, took us out of the desert and um, left us there. Wow. So that was the second time. So how did you, I mean, how did you get out of there when you had nothing, that you still had nothing, right? Yeah, we walked and we hitchhiked and we walked and finally made it to a phone and called the command and got met and got a ride to the border and made it. Wow. Do you remember what was going through your head at that point? Um, I could say never, I never thought it wasn't going to work. I knew we were going to get out somehow. Mm-hmm. I had no idea how. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, you just don't wait and you go one foot in front of the other and you just keep moving. Just like we say, suck it up. And I'm glad it happened. You know, I think it makes you a stronger person when those things happen. And there was no, no harm came of it other than we all became stronger people. Yeah. What a great perspective. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Thanks. Yeah. Well, I know, you know, whenever I talked with you about being on this podcast, one of the things you like to do now is really help people with their mindset, right? I do. Yeah. I really do. I like that. Pretty much the thing I like best, really. Yeah. So tell me about that. Tell me how those of us listening and sitting under your your wisdom, how we can glean from the things you've learned or any of your best tips on having that mindset that just breaks through boundaries. So in the big perspective of it all, my life has been really easy. I've had a very easy, easy life, especially when you compare that to, like I mentioned, the guys in the teams now at war, people in other countries, you know, who've been captured by ISIS and have been imprisoned and, so relative, not too many Americans, but relative to a lot of the world, my life's been very, very easy. And, you know, during World War II, my uncle was captured. He was pitchforked into the ground and left for dead. And he survived and lived till his 80s. I mean, I had it so easy compared to all of that. So I think we're meant to face challenges, and it just makes you a, a tougher, stronger person. Combat mindset is the ability to weed out distractions and focus on the mission. Mm -hmm. And so when life gets really, really hard, family life or husband or wife issues arise or work problems come up, so many people have gotten through that. It's really a minuscule problem in the big picture. And everybody who's gone through it before, a lot of them have gone through it, so why can't you? Being captured, we weren't being tortured. We weren't being tortured. I think that we're we're faced with these challenges to make you a tougher person. And if you always think that you're going to, if you think positively that there's a solution, you might not know it, but there is a solution, I think you have a lot better chance of coming out okay. So what we call combat mindset is if you get hurt, well, first of all, you're going to go on a mission and you're not going to get hurt. But if you do get hurt, you're going to get good medical treatment and you're going to survive. If you get captured, 
the mindset is you're going to be released. Just maintain, don't give away secrets, give up, just try to look for an avenue escape and you're going to do it. The enemy you're facing, you're better trained than he is. You're better trained than that enemy is. You can beat that enemy. When you're running in a race, when you're looking at the person in front of you, you think there's no reason in the world that person should be in front of me. I'm going to go up there and I'm going to pass that person. I'm going to make that person fight it out so he can't beat me. And I think that mindset, not to be super like competitive and, you know, just I got to beat everybody, but you can have the mindset that you can and use it when you need it and just be relaxed and calm every other time. But when you need it, we call it break glass in case of war. If you might see this calm, easygoing person, but when the problems arise, when there's a terrible disaster, we go to war, you're being confronted by the enemy, break glass in case of war, and that person's a warrior, and he can go off and take care of the issue at hand. And, and that's what I like to think, that life's nice, life is good, life is easy, and if the threat comes through my door right now, or if there's a suicide bomber next door, I know I'll, I'll react properly. And I'll, well, my goal will be to help other people around because I know I'm going to survive and I know I can help a lot of people rather than, oh my God, I hope that doesn't happen. What happens if that happens? That's not a good mindset. The good mindset is if it does happen, I'm ready. And I know that's a long answer to that question. I hope that helped. I wasn't very clear and concise in answering that, but it's just really a mindset that you're going to win. Yeah. And you might get beat up a little yeah. along the way, but it makes you a stronger, tougher person, but you're still going to win in the long run. And I love telling people that because especially these kids on opioids now and heroin addicts and people struggling, people who have a lot of problems, it's nice if they can get a little bit of that attitude, which I call reaching beyond boundaries, because whatever problems they're facing life, having some sort of that attitude, some aspect of an attitude like that, I don't see how it can't help anybody. Yeah. And, you know, I call it reaching boundaries, but a lot of people call it other things. It's just an attitude. We call it combat mindset in the SEAL team. Yeah. I No, I actually thought the answer was very clear. And I wrote down what you said about the combat mindset, that to weed out distractions and focus on the mission. That statement right there is powerful. Um, and I'm curious. So I, I know that distractions for somebody on a SEAL team is going to look different than distractions for people, civilians, right? But how do you feel like we can be aware of distractions? Because sometimes I feel like distractions come and we don't realize until we, we've been focusing on them for a while that we've been letting distractions run our life. Do you have any tips on that, on being aware of those distractions and just staying focused on the mission? Yeah. I think that, I know this has been my whole life, really. You have to have a mission or a goal or a macro goal, what I call them, or an objective. And you have to have that. And whatever that might be, it might be, you know, becoming the bank president or it might be training to do a, a piano recital, whatever it is, it might be a SEAL mission, but whatever it is, that might, it might be, becoming a, be becoming a SEAL or a doctor or a chiropractor. So you have that objective, that mission, and it's really, really, really difficult to get there. So that's the macro goal, but you have to have a series of micro goals to reach that because you can't go from here to here and just achieve anything you want in the world. But you can lay out a plan of micro goals to get there. And not every micro goal will be achievable. 
So then you just redirect a little bit, adjust, and have another micro goal. For instance, if that's a marathon, I got a 5K, I got to do a 5K faster here, I got to do a 10K here. By this point, I'm doing a half marathon. By this point, I'm doing a half marathon, sub, sub hour and a half pace. Um, one month before the race, I'll start easing up a bit. I got to do six minute miles by this point. And you have to have all these macro goals and boom, when you get to that macro goal, you're ready to hit it. But if, if you have this timeline and you have micro goals set and you're not meeting them and they're distracting you for whatever the distractions are and you stay down here and you're not going up the ladder to hit the macro goal, it could be caused by a lot, a lot of reasons. But for me, when I'm not passing the micro goals needed to hit that macro goal, I, I lose my momentum going there. That's a problem. And then I have to reanalyze everything and think, what is wrong? The macro goal is not too high, is I have to reset the micro goals. Mm -hmm. And then um, once you accomplish that, you accomplish that marathon, what I'd always do is say, okay, now that's a micro goal. Next macro goal is a double marathon, an ultra. Okay, I have to do this marathon, this marathon has to be this fast, this marathon has to be this fast. And then you get the ultra, the 50 mile or the 100K. And once you get that, bring it down. And then the next one is an Ironman. And then now you have an ultra marathon, an ultra marathon, and then the Ironman, you achieve it. And then you bring that down. And like in my talk, I say what I did, it, I did it in under 12 hours. So I thought my next macro goal would be two Ironmans in a day. I thought if I could do one in one day, I could do two in one day. So my next macro goal is two Ironmans one day. So I did the same thing and did two Ironmans one day. And then I went on to the 10 day races and the mountaineering, but that worked even if, for some reason, you don't make your macro goals, and there have been macro goals I haven't met. All the micro goals, by the time you get up there, you've reached a lot more than you would have if you didn't have that plan that you that you mapped out. Yeah, I love that. That's so practical. I'm curious. Yeah, I know you've done, and correct me if I'm wrong, you've done a lot of coaching of people like who want to do races and things, right, or want to become a SEAL. What have you seen is the difference between people who set those, the macro goal and the micro goals, but they get stuck? Like what is, do you, do you ever notice any common themes when people just get stuck consistently, any consistent boundaries or anything like that? I do. I think the people who get stuck will have legitimate excuses or make up excuses and they say, okay, I can't do it for this reason. And then they don't go on. So their macro goal or their objective wasn't powerful enough to them to get past those excuses. People who don't make excuses, I think they go much, much further. I mean, I, I don't like to say this because it sounds so pessimistic, but when anybody gives me an excuse of any reason for anything, it really just goes in one ear and out the other. To me, it's just nonsense. And um, I don't even listen to them. It just goes like Charlie Brown's school teacher, blah, 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 blah. I don't even hear it. So I think excuses, everybody can find reasons why not to do something. Those same people can find reasons to do things and not not to do things. I, I get really, I, I'm not happy around people who make excuses. I get very frustrated. Yeah. Even talking to them, you know, when you say, well, you can do it this way. And then there's an excuse why they can't. Well, do it this way. Well, you better go get a mindset because you don't have one right now. Yeah. You no. Know? You hit the nail on the head when you said their macro goal wasn't powerful enough. I think that I say something similar whenever I teach women and I tell them that their, your why has to be greater than your what ifs, which and that's basically the same thought process is that your your mission has to be greater than, well, what if all these things happen along the way? And like you said, the excuses and things. So that that just sums it all up perfectly. Oh, 
I like what you said too. <laughs> why it has to be so powerful. Yeah, yeah. Oh man. Okay. I feel like I could talk to you for hours. So let's try to wrap this up. I might just have to have you on again. If people listening want to learn more from you on these topics of like that combat mindset you talked about, and then your, the breaking boundaries, what, which of your books would be the most helpful in that? I'm going to have two publishers really upset if they hear this, because I have three publishers <laughs> and I've done 20 books. And um, by far, my favorite book is Reaching Beyond Boundaries. And it's, um, to me, I, I was so motivated writing that because I got to talk to and talk about these people who really, really inspired and motivated me. And when I do these talks around the country, they're only hour-long talks, but the book goes more into detail and explains it more. And the talks, you know, I've talked with actually Monica Lewinsky a couple of weeks ago, Dr. Ben Carson, Magic Johnson, all these people. And they say, aren't you intimidated by and I just did a talk with four-star general a four-star admiral and a congressman they said aren't you worried about talking to those people I said not at all my message I so I'll go to my grave believing this so I, I, I love the message but the talk is just one hour of it and I'm so confident in giving it to anybody because I believe in it so much but the book is a lot more than just the one hour and some of the most motivating, motivated, just people who've motivated me more in my life than anybody have really praised that book. That's been my, my, my favorite project. And then that's called Reaching Beyond Boundaries. Then there's a trilogy under that where there's three smaller books that are just coming out. It's just called a trilogy, Facing Your Fears and Overcoming Challenges and things like that. But so there's a follow-on to Reaching Beyond Boundaries that's just coming out now. But that's been my favorite project. If I, if I didn't do any other projects, I'm fine with it because I, I was very happy with that one. Yeah. And that's your latest book, right? The Reaching Beyond Boundaries? It is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's a good one to listen to when you run. That's what I did. <laughs> it makes me, I'm like, run a little faster than usual when I'm listening to that one. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh, so good. Well, th <laughs> thank you for sharing all of your wisdom. Is there anything else before we hop off that you would just want people to to hear or know about their potential in, in life? Well, I really admire what you're doing. And because what you're doing is you're getting these type of messages out to a lot of people. So I think it's really great what you do because your voice goes out there and you're doing this just to help other people. I think that's great. And I think you're probably motivating other people to do the same thing. No, I think, I think people should... Uh, just follow those four steps, get faster, stronger, and smarter every day, and help somebody every day. And then even helping people that the doctors say that helps alleviate stress. When you help people, your stress levels go down, you feel better about yourself. So I think it just makes you healthier and happier and those around you. And and why, why uh, stress out? You know, why not just do what you love doing, do it the, to the best you can, go after that far-reaching goal, it's going to be hard, but when you reach it, then take a break and relax a bit saying, ah, I did it. Now I got to reset and get another macro goal. Before long, you know, for, for me as an athlete, I, I wanted to do a thousand races in my lifetime. I achieved that in the 80s and I'm still racing. And I just set that goal too low. And I say this quite a bit too, but I, I think the real tragedy for most people in life, and I realized this after getting out of the SEAL teams, Real tragedy, I think, for most people, it's not that they set the goals too high and they don't make them. I think a lot of people, they set the goals low 
and they reach them and they're okay with that. Mm. And then they go on the rest of the life just reaching low, reaching goals. And then all of this space, the potential loss, that void never gets filled and their full potential never gets reached. I think that happens to most people. Yeah. And it, but if, and that will happen if you don't go out and push yourself hard to reach that macro goal, then take a break because you can't be redlining it all the time and pushing yourself to the max all the time. We call that, as you know, as a runner and an athlete, race pace. But you can go to race pace to reach that macro goal and then take a break, reset, and go after your next one. And it's fun. It's a fun way to live, I think. In your book, you had mentioned about finding those rhythms of, you know, achieving those bigger goals, but then taking seasons or not seasons of rest, but some rest. How do you do that? Or what are your goals on that balance in that way? As an early marathon runner, I had a great runner tell me something and I had a bad race or something. He said, don't worry. He said, people have good races and bad races. People have hard weeks and easy weeks. People have hard days and easy days. In the long run, you're going to have easy years and hard years. He said, it all takes, you, you need it all. You need the, the easy days, take your breaks, take it easy, but you need your hard days. You might have an easy week because you're traveling, but then take it, get a hard week. But in the long run, it's all going to balance out. You might have a hard two-year span, but the next year is going to be easy. And he taught me that if, if things just aren't going your way and things are, you can't work out as much as you want or you can't train or prepare for a job as much as you want to, consider that the easy times, but then make up for it by pushing harder to make up for it by the, with a hard time, hard oh. effort. Yeah, that's such great advice. Okay, so we're going to for real wrap up. I, I promise. I'm like, I got to just stop. I got more questions for you. So maybe I'll just have to bring you back on the show. You're just full of too much wisdom. But if people listening want to connect to you, are you in the online space anywhere where they can come find you? I, I am. I'm on uh, Facebook under my name, Don Mann, M-A-N-N. And I have a website that's U.S. Frogman. That's what you call a seal, a frogman. But it's spelled with two N's, so it's U-S-F-R-O-G-M-A-N-N.com. Okay. And just my name, man, seal, it, it pops, that, that website pops up anyways. Perfect. Yeah. So I'll send them there and that'll be in the show notes as well. So people can come find you and, and hear even more of your stories because you, I know you have so many more stories. And so definitely go check out all his books and find him online and just keep being inspired. But thank you, Don, again, for taking time to come on the show to share your stories. I know a lot of people are going to be very inspired. And I just think it's neat that we're able to get a glimpse into the life of a Navy SEAL. And just, again, we're just very appreciative of everything you've done for us. Oh, thank you, Rachel. It's a pleasure talking with you and seeing you. And I appreciate you having me on the show. Do you see why I had a hard time stopping the conversation with Don? I left our time to go beyond my limits, and I believe you will too. And you know, the other thing I love about Don is just that despite all that he has done in his life, he remains humble and grateful, and it's just so nice to see that. And before I go, I want to thank all of the men and women who've served our country. We are grateful for your service. All right, friends, that's all for today. I pray this episode brought you one step closer to getting real, living free, and pursuing your God-given dreams. I'll see you back here next time on Real Talk with Rachel.